Hey friends, Jason Miller here, and this is the South Bend City Church Podcast. As always, if you'd like to stay up on other things happening with our church, just go to southbendcitychurch.com, and you can sign up for the email newsletter or use the website to see what's happening. If you'd like to make an offering, go to southbendcitychurch.com slash give. And if the podcast is your primary source of connection for our church, select podcast when you make a gift, and that'll just give us some context for your generosity. Uh, as always, whether you're a part of our local community and using the podcast to catch a week that you missed, or you're a part of our long distance family, we love you and we hope this serves you well. We've been talking since Easter about this big, brave, beautiful idea. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And we've observed the tension, the strangeness, that it, it feels like there is the old world and the new world coexisting in every moment. There's, there's an old world with decay and death and violence and shame and breakdown, and there's a new world with hope and life and, and healing and dignity. And we, we wanna opt into this new world and opt out of the old one, and we've been asking how we do that. And so we've talked about things like letting go, whether the thing that you have to let go of is the old dream that perhaps you had for the future that's no longer there, or the resentments that have stacked up on your shoulders as life has dragged you down. And we've talked about design, we've talked about how to be intentional about the shape and structure, the, the small things in your life that add up to big movements in your life that either connect you to the old world or the new. We talked about the way we pattern our weeks, our days, our schedules, our behaviors. Uh, we've talked about design. And then today to wrap this up, we're gonna talk a little bit about what happens when you and I come together. Uh, now, by the way, again, if you're listening on the podcast, this may not be obvious to you, but I'm back in Studebaker 112, and there's chairs behind me, which is very exciting, uh, because we're just one week away from crossing over into phase two, which is gatherings back here in 112 with capacity limits and masks, uh, but I'm really excited about it, and you can see how this space, we've been working really hard to get ready for all of you to come back, uh, so we'll look forward to that, and make sure you pay attention to the website and the newsletter for details about how to register for those gatherings, uh, but we'd love to see you. But as we get ready to come back together, let's talk a little bit about what happens in our midst in light of the old world and the new. There's a letter that was written sometime in the last half of the first century. And it's a letter that was written to a group of people who would have gathered together to hear this letter read aloud to them. And in this letter written sometime in the last half of the first century AD, we read these strange words. In Christ, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let me say that again and see if you can hear the strangeness and the hopefulness of these words. In Christ, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, maybe you've heard those words before. They actually come from a letter that we have a good record of. It's called the letter of the Ephesians. Uh, it's in the New Testament. But I, I just want to focus on the strangeness of these words when they were written and who they were written to. So you've got a, a cluster, sort of a scrappy little gathering of 10, 20, 30, 40 people in a home who have been responding to this event that we call Christ, this experience that we call Christ. And, and then this letter is written to them saying that there's, there's a dwelling that you are being built into that's a dwelling for God. And these people, like most of them, would have had a frame of reference for a dwelling for God. But when they hear that phrase, they would not think of a scrappy little gathering of Jesus followers in a home somewhere. They would think of a temple. Because of course, a, a temple is a dwelling place for God or the gods. And whether these were Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians, whether they had been to Jerusalem and seen the temple in Jerusalem or any of these other major cities in the Roman Empire and seen 
temples built on mountaintops to these deities. They knew what a temple was. A temple is a big building that you that you build where God dwells. But if they had seen the temple in Jerusalem, for example, they, they would know a little bit more about the nature and, and shape of a temple. Uh, because they, they would they would have a picture in mind of what you see when you walk in there. And you and I, of course, we've not been to the temple in Jerusalem. So let me describe for you what you would have seen if you had been there 2,000 years ago. You, you would have uh, begun to make your way into the temple and you first would have noticed these two pillars named Jachin and Boaz. And these pillars, oddly enough, are holding nothing up except the sky. They just sort of go up into the air where they hold up the sky, which corresponds to an ancient cosmology that way that first century people thought about the shape of the, the world was that the sky was this hardened dome above, like the roof of a, of, a, of, a, of a big athletic arena. And it would rest in their imagination on pillars, foundations, structures that perhaps came up from the mountains to hold that dome up. So perhaps you see these, these pillars, Jacob and Boaz, and you immediately start thinking, something's going on here with relation to the world at large. And then you would see uh, a big metal basin filled with water. And you might hear them refer to it as the sea. And then you would walk indoors and you would see uh, arboreal imagery, tree imagery in the room all around you. And then if you look down to the end of the Holy of Holies, you would see a curtain embroidered with stars on it. And quickly you would probably notice that when you walked into the temple, you walked into a microcosm of the world. You, you walked into a little diorama, a little reimagining, a little miniature model of the world that you lived in every day, but the temple was there to help you reimagine it in microcosm. The temple is a place where you go to imagine that the world is different than the way it seems when you're outside the doors of that temple. And you go there to imagine new possibilities of harmony with God and with your neighbor. The temple is not just some building uh, on a special mountaintop somewhere. A temple is anywhere that the spirit is enacting an imagination for the new world. And, and uh, these people would have had lots of experience walking into temples and knowing that that's what they're all about. Now, um, the fact that a temple isn't necessarily just a building, but it could be a reimagining of the world, explains perhaps why Jesus gets away with calling himself the temple. Now, I say he gets away with it. People get really mad about this, actually. But Jesus says uh, these strange things like, hey, if you tear down the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And what he means is he's referring to his own life. And they think he's talking about that big building on the mountaintop in Jerusalem. And, and so if temple is a place where the spirit is enacting a new imagination for a new world, then consider Jesus and his life and his teachings and his healings and his death and his resurrection. There's a New Testament scholar named Scott McKnight. And Scott McKnight, in translating the parables of Jesus, those strange stories that Jesus tells, uh, he begins his translation of each one of Jesus' parables with this phrase. Imagine a world where, dot, 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 right? Like, imagine a world where there is so much abundance that the master can afford to give to those who showed up late in the shift, the same as what the master gives to those who showed up at the beginning of the day. Uh, imagine a world where even sons and daughters of rebellion who have run away and squandered everything and shown great disrespect to the household that they came from can find themselves coming back and being fully embraced. Imagine that kind of world. So Jesus tells stories like this, and with every story he tells, he is building a temple out of his words and his actions, helping the people around him imagine a new kind of world. 
Of course, it's not just his words, it's his healings. Like when people bring somebody to him in need of healing and they ask, is this person's difficulty because of his sin or his parents' sin? Because these are people who are having a hard time imagining that things aren't closed system zero sum. And so if something's wrong, somebody must have earned this suffering. And Jesus says, that's not what this story is about. But it's the location where the glory of God's going to be revealed. Imagine a world where suffering is not a, the thing that God imposes on us because of a zero-sum equation of, of faults and strengths. But imagine where even the broken places are places where the glory of God might shine. And so, um, so Jesus inherits uh, the vocation of the temple in his life. And then he seems to speak to his followers and allude that they're going to carry that on, like when he promises them the spirit or breathes the spirit on them. Because, of course, temple is where spirit dwells. And then we get this strange little note to these uh, followers of Jesus in Ephesus that says, in Christ you are being built together into a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So is it if to say that, like, if we're going to try to live in the new world, that church can be, ought to be, could be one of the ways, one of the places that we are imagining how the new world could work right here in our midst. Like we get to build a little microcosm of the new world right now, even while the old world rages. We get to build it in the way that we relate to one another, in the way that we take care of each other, in the ways that we pray and repent and reflect and celebrate and move in solidarity with one another. That's new world action happening right here in the life of a scrappy little Jesus community, even while the old world rages around us. Now, uh, part of what I'm talking about is microcosm, right? Whether it's the actual temple that was a microcosm of the physical world or the microcosm that, that we are living in together in our midst as spirit breathes on us and we, we practice the patterns of the new world here in this little expression right here in South Bend. Uh, microcosm might seem fickle, might seem uh, uninteresting in the face of all that is broken and the world at large. But I, but I actually think if you pay attention to people who do the good and hard work of building a new world, they will teach you that microcosms, small little proving grounds of possibility, are so important. Uh, one of the best glimpses I got of this was my first trip to Israel-Palestine uh, 11 years ago now. And, and I was over there to learn about uh, the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians and all the different angles and experiences and narratives that are a part of that conflict. And um, you, you see a lot of impossibility. You feel the old world raging in stories of violence and division and suffering. But then there are these hopeful little bright lights where you, you can taste, you can sense, you can see little, little breaking in moments of the new world. And one of the people and experiences where I had that was a man named Samuel Watt, who's a Palestinian Christian and uh, a, a teacher and an activist for peace. And on that first trip, we were sitting with Samuel, and he was telling us about the work that he's trying to do as a follower of Jesus who cares about peace in a world where there's lots of division. And he talked about how like a lot of leaders in conflict will talk about how we need a framework for peace. We, we need a frame, right? So he'll, you know, you'll have policies and you'll have um, different sort of theories about how to create a peace treaty and how to lay down arms and how to like broker big political solutions. And he says, frames are good. Frameworks are good. But while some people are working on the, the frame, so, some others of us should just start painting right now inside the frame. And so he talked about how he and some other friends have been making these plans to live in actual community, like a commune that, that Israeli Jews and Palestinian Christians and Palestinian Muslims would all live together in intentional community. Now, that's not going to solve the crisis overnight, right? 
But, but of course, in that part of the world, there are a lot of people who are having a hard time imagining that Israeli Jews and Palestinian Christians and Palestinian Muslims could actually live in loving, mutual relationship. And he thought, well, maybe one of the most powerful things that we can do is, is actually like build a microcosm of that in, in space and time and flesh and blood. And I don't know about you, but like when I heard him tell that story, like something shifted in my heart. This said, like, yes, this is what we do. Even if we can't address everything broken in the world today, we can build a little microcosm of the new world right here in our midst, in, in the span of our actual relationships, of our actual life that we live right here in South Bend together. And so uh, uh, if we want to live in a new world and we feel the old world raging, one of the best things we can do, I think, is to actually show up for one another in this strange, scrappy little experiment that we call church. Now, I mentioned, you know, Palestinians and Israelis and how in that instance, the new world looks like strangers coming together. And it's not an accident that I, I use that as an example, because we could talk about the new world all day long, but we at some point have to stop and ask, well, what's the content of the new world? Like, what are the contours of the new world? In what ways is the new world different from the old? And the interesting thing about this letter that I shared with you from Ephesians, where where Paul or somebody writing in Paul's name tells the church, you are being built into a temple. You are being built into an experimental proving ground for the new world. Well, that comes in Ephesians 2, verse 22. But before that, in chapter 2 in Ephesians, Paul has this big, brave, surprising, creative theological reflection on how in the event of Christ, the, the big thing that has happened, that the defining characteristic of the new world that has been birthed in Christ's resurrection is that Jew and Gentile have been brought together, that, that these two groups of people, two different kinds of people with different religious sensibilities and ethnic perspectives and ethical perspectives, like these, these two very different groups of people have come together in the church, that a wall of hostility has been torn down between them. And he uses the phrase, a new humanity has been forged from these two disparate groups. In other words, at the heart of the new creation, like the content, the contour of the new world is the, is the remembering, the rediscovery that we are all in this together, that we belong to each other. That like, like that's the big, brave, beautiful thing that's happening when the new world comes. And church can be a place where we remember that we are all in this together, that we belong to each other. I mean, it turns out in fact, that like the old world got birthed when, for example, Cain looked at his brother Abel, and instead of seeing his brother, his kin, he saw a threat for competing for the blessing of God, and so he enacted violence against his brother. That's when the old world came raging, and the old world is birthed when Abraham looks at Hagar and Ishmael, uh, this child born of a decision that he had made, and sends them away into the wilderness because he doesn't want to be confronted with his mistake. And the old world is born when uh, Jacob sees his brother Esau, again, as a competition for the resources of blessing that he wants so badly for himself, and so he steals. And the old world is born when Joshua and his brothers live at war with one another because they can't handle the way that the Father shows blessing on one. And the old world is born later when the Israelites forget that they had been delivered out of slavery themselves, and they enact slavery upon others to build the temple, the most ironic tragedy you can think of in the Old Testament, that former slaves have been liberated, think that they can rightly build a temple, a place to imagine the world the way that God wants it to be on the back of slave labor. And we could go on and on, but fast forward to today 
And I think the old world continues to rage in all the ways and places that we forget that we belong to each other and that we are in this together. And the new world is being birthed anywhere in the world that we are rediscovering our mutual belonging with one another and with God. And so uh, if we are being built into a dwelling for the Spirit of God and a place where the new world is, is being born, well, then church is going to be a place where we discover that we belong to each other, that we are in this together, that um, brothers and sisters from different experiences and perspectives and different uh, backgrounds and places on the socioeconomic spectrum, like that brothers and sisters with different perspectives on belief and faith, that as we discover that we belong together, the new world is being born, which uh, by the way, is the heartbeat behind so much of what we do at Sopin City Church. This is why we preach everyone an icon until we are blue in the face. Because, uh, because I think my capacity to know God is directly connected to my capacity to see God in my neighbor, my brother, my sister, my enemy, people who aren't like me. This is why we sit in the round, and you can kind of see it in the room here. We actually sit in the round so that by, by coming together, we don't all just sit in a row facing the guy on the stage, forgetting how much we have in common, but rather we sit in a circle so that we can look at one another and that brothers' and sisters' faces can be the primary surface, the primary text of our meditation on the presence of God in our midst. This is uh, why we cherish the Eucharist as not just a, a private experience between me and my personal Jesus, but rather is a shared feast where anyone who wants to be at the table with Jesus is welcome at the table with Jesus and where we find that we share in common our mutual hunger and our mutual embrace at that table. This is uh, why so many of our practices are so communal as a church. This is also, by the way, why sometimes we have hard conversations as a church. When we talk about things like racial justice or um, we call out some of the misogyny that has kept women down, especially in religious spaces. This is why we, we do some of this work. We're not trying to import division. I'm, I'm not trying to like subtly smuggle in some kind of partisan political agenda. I'm not even trying to compete in the woke Olympics. None of those things are, are driving the heart behind this. But I, I don't want to surrender the territory of, um, of, of naming the sin that has kept our brothers and sisters down and kept us divided so that we can bury that sin in the grave and live a new life together. I don't want to surrender that territory uh, to other spaces because I think it's the terrain of Jesus and his kingdom to do so. And we do it to enact the beautiful but uh, demanding truth that we belong together, that we are in this together. Uh, and that the further we move in that direction, the more the new world is birthed right here. And so um, this, this, this uh, possibility of the church is um, heavy on my heart in the best possible way as we come out of COVID and we get ready to gather together again, as we uh, prepare to have um, some of our regular spaces uh, to inhabit as a church. Um, I'm so grateful for digital spaces and grateful for the idea that like God can meet you anywhere and you don't have to come to church to meet God. I, I'm so grateful for um, the possibilities of spirit that are lurking in every corner of our lives, even apart from you know religious practice or regular gathering. But I don't know about you, I am desperate for, I'm hungry for the unique encounter of spirit in our midst when we come together and when we are on the hunt for the life of God in our brothers and sisters. And so uh, it's coming up soon. Now, I, I will say too, um, 
there are so many painful chapters in so many painful ways that church has not been the birthing room of the new world. It has been the standard bearer for the old world. And I'm sorry about that. There are so many ways that church has basically just been the place where we baptized and called sacred all of the antichrist and evil divisions of the world that we, that we have created. And um, if you have felt that either in the history of books that you have read or in your personal history with church, I'm sorry about that. But I think the, the pain that's caused when church becomes a place of exclusion rather than inclusion, a place of division rather than belonging, the pain that, that, that comes from that difficult experience is actually a sign to me that church is a place of such great possibility for us to come together. I mean, like, think about this, for example, like family wounds can be some of the deepest wounds precisely because family is supposed to be a place where we are safe, right? And if family weren't supposed to be a place where we are safe, I don't know that family would have such great possibility for wounding us so much. And in a similar way, I think uh, church, spiritual community, like Christian family is capable of, of hurting so badly precisely because it has within it such possibility of being the place where the new world of mutual belonging is birthed. So if you feel that pain, I get it and I'm sorry. But for what it's worth, I don't think that's a reason to give up on the project. I think it's a reason to get better at the project and keep figuring it out together. And so, um, and so we will come back together and we will find rituals and practices and patterns ways of resisting the old world, of defying the old world and insisting on the new. And so we will lay down shame together and we will pick up dignity. Rather that dignity has been challenged in our personal lives or in the systems that we have created. And we're gonna, we're gonna lay down loneliness and pick up community. And we're gonna lay down some of our woundedness and grow in healing. And we're gonna do these things together as a church all the while hunting for the new world that is being born in every moment uh, as we discover what it means to be in Christ, this mystery of God with us in these flesh and blood bodies and lives. Now, um, we've been uh, using this uh, beautiful poem from Kitty O'Mara uh, throughout this month of Easter and resurrection and new world. And uh, today, this one last time before we kind of come back, to our life together here in Studebaker. I wanted to share it uh, as a closing benediction. And so once again, I hope you let these words stir in you something beautiful and new, and then we can work out together what that looks like. So as the danger passes and we join together again, may we grieve our losses and may we make new choices and may we dream new images and may we create new ways to live and heal the earth fully as we are being healed. And may grace and peace be with you.